about two o'clock in the morning, I was awakened by the power going off. It wasn't so much a sound, it was the absence of sound. All the white noise stopped, then I heard the rain. The sound of the rain on the roof went from a good hard summer rain to something very freakish and loud. Troublesome Creek was absolutely roaring. It was out and all over everything. And I was just chilled to realize that the water shooting down the street was Troublesome Creek. The first morning of the flood, I was very distraught. I was just absolutely flipped out that everything was destroyed. And I said, boys, this is it, I guess. We're done. And I started to understand that I really, as a leader, couldn't do that because they needed to understand that it wasn't hopeless. No, they weren't fired. We were going to clean up and rebuild, and they were going to have jobs. If it was the last thing I did, I was going to pay them and their job had just changed into you were skilled luthiers now you're disaster recovery specialists and you're going to learn more about shoveling mud than you ever wanted to know Kate Tucker, and this is Hope is My Middle Name, a podcast from Consensus Digital Media. Today, we're talking with Doug Naselroad. I first heard Doug in a news interview describing the aftermath of the 2022 Kentucky floods as he tried to recover instruments that were over 100 years old, guitars, banjos, dulcimers just floating down the street. Doug is a master luthier, a builder of stringed instruments. He's also the founder of the Appalachian School of Luthery, the director of Troublesome Creek String Instrument Company, and he's the co-founder of a program called Culture of Recovery, which helps people recover from addiction by learning creative art skills, like building guitars. Doug does all these things in Hindman, Kentucky, which on July 28th was all but destroyed after severe rains caused the Troublesome Creek to rise into a thousand-year flood. The water and the mud overtook his instrument factory, the School of Luthery, and the Museum of the Mountain Dulcimer, all three places he had poured his heart, soul, and song into for over a decade. And the music wasn't all that was lost. Across eastern Kentucky and throughout central Appalachia, entire homes, communities, people's lives were lost. It somehow resonated that in the midst of utter disaster, someone was down there trying to recover instruments of song, of story, of Appalachian history. And he was talking about the hope of recovery from something that sounded pretty conclusively devastating. I thought, I would love to talk with this guy. So a few months later, when he was standing on dry ground, I called him up. Welcome, Doug. I'm so excited to get to talk with you today. Thank you for having me. Let's start with music. Where did music first enter your life? 
Well, my first memory of music is a 45 RPM record player when I was a little kid. I had a couple of records that I played all the time, and one of them was Froggy Went a Courtin', <laughs> of course, which I played over and over again. And another one was a Frankie Lane record, Moonlight Gambler. <laughs> I loved it because they whistled when they did that. And Perry Como, The Wheel of Love. And then, you know, country music, of course, was always there. Where did you grow up? In Mount Sterling, Kentucky. Hmm. I've heard you talk about Appalachia, and you've said it's a place where you had to make your own fun. We didn't have much money. We didn't really have musical instruments. I didn't own a guitar of my own until I was 16. That was the same year I decided to make one. Hmm. We always wanted a piano, but we could never afford one. I tried to make music on uh, different kinds of instruments that I would borrow or try, but my mother bought me a uh, K archtop guitar. Well, I guess it was the Christmas I turned 15 because by the time I was 16, I I made a guitar myself. <laughs> and I was learning country and folk songs early on. Was the K archtop what you would get from the Sears catalog? Well, similar. I think Mom went and bought this at a pawn shop. Nice. It was a really nice one because she had paid $24 for it. <laughs> well, you made short order of making your own after that. The first one I made wasn't actually for me. Mm. My musical journey, as far as learning how to play, began when I got that guitar. But my girlfriend at the time was a very good guitarist and a singer, and she was teaching me how to play. Mm. She had a guitar that was really cheap and kind of falling apart, and I thought it was bright and creative, and so I <laughs> said, I'll make her the best guitar that anyone ever had because I've got a guitar, and I can look at this one, and I'll know how to do it. And so I made her this incredibly bold guitar that was pieced together out of little bits and pieces of wood because I didn't have regular supplies available to me. Yeah. I made it with a checkerboard top, and we were 16. You know how those teenage romances go. I do. Let's talk about the people and the place that is Appalachia. Yes, ma'am. As someone who grew up there, what do you think makes Appalachia unique? It's been uh, geographically about as isolated as any part of the country for many generations. So it's maintained a lot of its culture intact. We kid about it all the time, but there's a real stoicism and resolve required in order for a person to live in Appalachia. But at the same time, there is a stunning beauty to it. Hyman, for instance, is just a gorgeous town. And it was prettier before the flood, but it's coming back right now. Mm -hmm. So my mom grew up in West Virginia, and both sides of my family are from down near Elkins, Colton area. Oh, yeah. Anytime I get to go back there, it just feels like home. Even though I was born up here in Ohio, it's just such a magical place. And a lot of what I've gleaned from my ancestors is this love of good stories and appreciation for music and the way it can take you through an experience. And I'd love to talk about Appalachian music, how it functions 
and what different ways music serves the people of Appalachia? It goes back at least 200 years that I know of. There's actually a song about my great-great-great-great-grandfather. His name was Eli Boggs. Mm. They call him Ely. The song was called Poor Goins about somebody that apparently he tracked down and killed. And the reason I mention this, of course, the Goins family looks at it as being a tale of villainy. And on my side of the family, it's the Boggses. It's a tale of frontier justice because depending upon who you listen to, Eli Boggs was the sheriff or he might have been the bootlegger in the story and then justice was being dealt out by the other guy, the poor Goins. Mm. But what functions in that is that there's a narrative in the song that was what passed for emails and letters in that day. People would pass these songs around and people would hear these stories about real people in the mountains. And that isolation played into that a lot. I think people were storytellers of necessity, Mm. which I think carried pretty well into the 20th century. In this area in about 1902, the settlement school was founded and people began to come down here like uh, Cecil Sharp and I guess the modern nomenclature would be song catchers, Mm -hmm. ethnomusicologists, people who come down and record these songs, write them down. So Heinemann has been a place where people have come from the outside to meet the culture of Appalachia for many generations. Is there any song that comes to mind that you feel sort of embodies that heritage you're talking about? There's songs that have come up, like Down in the Willow Garden. Yeah. That's a song that my uh, Grandpa Boggs used to play on the banjo when I was little. (laughs) My grandfather would play the old-timey songs. When bluegrass came along, they started learning it. But unfortunately, very early on, my grandfather quit playing the banjo. And he says, Dougie, I went and acted a fool. Grandma got after me, and I sold my Gibson Florentine banjo (gasps) down to pawn shop for $40. And I wished I could take it back. But I can't. It's all done. She told him there just wasn't any good in that old banjo because all you could do with a banjo is play worldly music. Do you have an instrument lying around there? Yeah, I do. Well, I think we need you to play a few lines of something for your grandpa. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, grandpa would be, he would roll over if he heard me playing. (laughs) Well, all these old uh, Appalachian songs were about um, death and loss and hardship. and, And something that happened one night here in Hindman. About 10 years ago, we were having one of those torrential rains. I'd actually parked my car down by the creek, and I got a little bit concerned because the creek is prone to rise year after year. And then I started thinking about this rainy night, and of all things, I picked up a concert ukulele, Hmm. started thrashing around on it because it worked a little bit like a banjo, and I thought, well, this is nice, and I... When I thought about this line, I thought, Well, I rode Big Gray in the Hindman town Where I left him dead on the cold, dark ground 
He drowned himself, taking me away When the flood rose up at the break of day Down Hindman Town Hindman Town Where the mountains ring You all around Down Hindman Town Hindman Town <laughs> Where the rain comes down With the troublesome sand Well, I wrote this whole story about how I'd suffered and struggled and gone through all kinds of different situations in Heinemann. Mm-hmm. Then I took my fiddle in my hand and I hide it out of the Cumberland, mm-hmm. which was my homage to that kind of music. And I ended up playing that song a lot, but... Ironically, I had the experience finally after I've been singing that song 10 years. My uh, little red Toyota <laughs> went under the floodwaters while I was sitting up there in that apartment and killed it deader than five o'clock. <laughs> wow. I mean, I don't know what you want to say about it or what you believe, but how songs can be. I don't know if prophetic is the word, but I write songs too, and I've definitely had experiences where I'm a little scared to write another song at this point. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, maybe five years ago we started singing a song that was called Hard Hit. You know, it was related to something else, but it went... uh, Hard hit is what we are The way a deer hits a car A falling star doesn't come down just right A bad break When you're broke It's just another dirty joke It ain't funny The blame sure ain't right And then the chorus of this song is uh, I wanna fly like a bird Hear one decent word I wanna bank on a good thing to come Let me work a good plan Till I can't even stand When it comes to hope I Could sure use me some And now that line Let me work a good plan Till I can't even stand <laughs> <laughs> That comes back to haunt me a lot these days mm. It was just about a prayer in music that said, we're hard hit, and just give me a wet, something to do to make this better. And lo and behold. Yeah. Not only can you play that guitar, but you probably built it. This is true. Tell me about your work as a luthier. What does your job entail? One major aspect of my job these days is I am director of the Troublesome Creek Stringed Instrument Company here in Hindman, Kentucky. I teach people how to make guitars, mandolins, dulcimers. We uh, also run a little production facility. Most of our workforce are people in recovery. We mentor them and empower them with really cool skills. And then we build these instruments out of mostly Appalachian hardwoods, which we love to gather from around Oh, the tri-states, mostly Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky. 
maybe we better throw Tennessee in there too. Mm. My godfather is a luthier, and I have not heard of using Appalachian hardwoods. My apprentices started insisting that they wanted to use wood outside of the norm. They didn't want to use mahogany or rosewood, which is expensive and it comes from a rainforest. But they had wood from grandpa's farm, the shelf boards out of granddad's grocery store. There were all kinds of really interesting choices. Mm-hmm. Curly black walnut. We have some magnificent walnut that we use and all kinds of substitutes for ebony and rosewood. We found out that Osage orange, which is also known as a hedge apple tree, it's a kind of a yellow wood, but as it ages and oxidizes, it turns a real beautiful rusty gold. Mm. It has the tonality of the very, very best Amazon rosewoods, which people are just now discovering So you're encouraging all this experimentation as you mentor these luthiers. I'm curious, you know, who was it that you looked up to when you were making your first instruments? My first instrument I made for a girl. I thought it turned out pretty well. And as I got out of high school, I started hanging around with a fellow named Homer Ledford. Now, Homer was a very skilled luthier kind of an all-round mountain craftsman. He lived over in Winchester, Kentucky. And Homer mentored me in instrument making a lot. And one of the main things that I saw Homer doing was making a living. He was feeding his family, had a nice house over there in Winchester, and a shop that was down in the basement. He had managed to make a career for himself making the mountain dulcimer. And I really wanted to make a living making guitars. I was still writing songs, and I wanted to succeed at that. But Homer would help me. I'd think up some harebrained design for an instrument, and Homer would be very generous with his time. Other luthiers might say, no, kid, go away, bother me. You can't do that. You're just dreaming. Homer would say, you want to do what? Why, sure, why not? You can do that, Doug. Mm. I think I needed that kind of encouragement. And I was determined that if Homer thought I could do something, I would. I would figure out a way to make it work. Although, I can tell you more than once, he probably regretted opening that door. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you walked right through it, and in 2012, you started the Appalachian School of Luthery. So how do you feel that you are carrying on, in some sense, his legacy, or how has his heart impacted your work? Well, his heart toward teaching other people has served me very well because I came down here with the idea of teaching forward everything I had learned. By then, you know, I'd been all over the country. I'd worked for Collings Guitars out in Austin, Texas during the 90s. I'd worked for a number of music stores, and I'd had my own business for quite a few years. The then executive director of the Appalachian Artisan Center called me in Winchester. He says, Doug, Bubby, I need a master luthier down here right away. And I'm like, where are you? He says, Heinemann. I said, where is Simon? What are you talking about? Why do you need a master luthier? And he says, we want to start a school of luthering. 
we got a building. We can, we can do this. And he was selling me on how wonderful and easy it would be to come down here and build a Lutheran school like no one has in Appalachia. Well, it has been pretty wonderful, but it hasn't been easy. <laughs> right at the first, there wasn't any money. And I really wasn't sure about the direction of things. I found out after I'd been here a while that the Heinemann area is actually like ground zero. It's the birthplace of Mount Dulcimer as we know it. The hourglass-shaped dulcimer that everyone associates with Kentucky or the Cumberlands, Hmm. as far as we know, first appeared here in about 1871, made by a man named James Edward Thomas, or Uncle Ed, as uh, everyone called him. (laughs) He made something like 1,400 of these very distinctive dulcimers out at a place called Big Doubles. This was the cultural roots of this whole idea of having a Lutheran school and getting people started. I mean, first guy that wanted to sign up with my school, he wanted me to teach him how to make the authoritative Thomas Dulcimer. (laughs) That was quite an adventure trying to figure out what that was because they were very scarce And locally, it seemed like no one had any idea at all what we were talking about when we went back and looked. But turns out that this man had numbered his instruments and dated them all. And in very short order, we had a couple of instruments come in from around 1912, 1913, that were in very, very bad need of repair, signed and dated by... James Edward Thomas. Wow. And we were able to retro-engineer them. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing about this, and it'll trace right back to what I was saying at first, is that he built his instruments starting that we know of in 1871. In 1830, the first mention of a dulcimer in the state of Kentucky, a dulcimore, was made by a gentleman named Eli Boggs in Letcher County, Kentucky. (gasps) Yes. What? There's a history of the Boggs and Maggard family written by Bud Phillips over in Virginia (laughs) that involves music and involves the history of the dulcimer in the Cumberland and Kentucky in, in particular in my family. In 1830, Eli Boggs had made a dulcimer for a very young girl at the time. I think she was still a teenager. Her name was Elizabeth Maggard, and she lived right here in Hindman. So when I was tied to it in that way, I took it as a sign. Okay, so you're in this process of, like you said, it's like recovering a culture, and there's this other culture of recovery that comes to the school. Tell me about the culture of recovery program. I had a man come to me kind of early on. His name was Earl. Earl came in, well, in a bad way. He was shaking. He was very pale. He was obviously not well. He had his one hand bandaged up, and he had apparently gotten caught in a router or something. 
he said, Mr. Nasal Road, I need to become a master luthier. And I said, well, you come to the right place, Earl. We have a program and we'll sign you right up. He said, I've been in some trouble. I don't know if I can sign right up with you guys. I need to have my uh, background check. And we talked for a while. And I figured out after I talked to his wife, he had been arrested on a felony charge and he was going into rehab. And he was wanting me to set him up with a goal. When he came out of rehab, he was going to go to my school and I was going to teach him how to be a guitar maker. That was the carrot he was hanging out there on the end of the stick for himself. I really have to hand it to Earl. That was a really great approach because it informed what we would do several years later. Hmm. When he came out of rehab, we had actually done some letters of mutual accountabilities where I'll do this, Earl, but you're going to have to do that. And it was almost like it was a framework for what we would come to later, which was what you mentioned, the culture of recovery. After Earl had worked for several years, made maybe 60 musical instruments with us, driven us all crazy, <laughs> he had gotten a degree, and he was well on his way to living a life in recovery. And we were given the opportunity at that point to write a grant for Art Place America. We understood that they were wanting a program that would impact the community. Even back then, I was thinking about a manufacturing company and creating jobs based on the things that I'd trained people to do. But at the same time, we had been working with volunteers from the Knott County Drug Court, and there was a lot of back and forth about how much addiction had ravaged Appalachia. And in particular, the opioid epidemic had just knocked the stuffings out of Heinemann and Knott County. So it was finally decided that we would create a program called the Culture of Recovery, which I named because we were trying to think of a way that we could introduce our master artists work through the studio programs to uh, people who are in recovery and in the process destigmatize their recovery we could put them on our radio show we could bring people out of rehab train them with a skill and present them to the world once again hmm. i'm curious what you think it is about building musical instruments that's effective in recovery from addiction? There's something really beneficial about a challenge that had a long curve to it. In other words, not an instant gratification. I mean, making a guitar is a commitment. In the case of a guitar, it's a commitment of several months. If we can keep the apprentice on course and maintaining that focus and working toward that goal, there is actually some biochemical thing that happens that rewires the chemistry of the addict's brain. Wow. 
Is there a story of someone maybe who inspires you to keep doing this kind of work? I did have one guy, Ricky Taylor. He also passed away several years ago, but Ricky and his brothers had come through the Knott County Drug Court, and they were in our first class of people to come through. Ricky was making about the most rudimentary instrument we make, which is called a canjo. Mm-hmm. It was a big tobacco can fastened on a stick with frets and a tuning pin, and uh, you could actually play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and <laughs> uh, Short and Bread on it, and it sounded pretty funky and pretty nice, but we would make these just by way of introduction. First day, Ricky was at the workbench, and he was tapping frets in with a little hammer. Tap, tap, tap. And he stopped abruptly. And his eyes got real big. And I said something like, oh, yeah, you got yourself, didn't you? I I thought he'd hammered his finger. You know, a lot of us certainly have done that. And he says, no. He says, I just realized I'm making something. (laughs) Mm. That was such a moment for me. I mean, I started realizing that what we had planned and what we were doing was a lot more important than what we'd imagined on paper. Mm. I would never have presumed to say, no, you dig in with us and you'll be changing lives. When Ricky passed away, he was a retired Army veteran, when he passed away from complications due to diabetes. At his funeral, they handed out programs talking about him and what he was most proud of in his life. And on the front of this program, there was a picture printed of him holding that canjo that he'd made that first class. No. <laughs> I couldn't stay too long because I was just too choked up mm. because it was really starting to weigh on me how important this simple stuff was Mm -hmm. to some of the people of this this community, especially people in the recovery community. They'll tell you, they'll say, oh, you know, this is life or death for me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll dismiss it, you know, say, oh, yeah, you're exaggerating. But I don't think so. Mm -hmm. So in realizing that, is that how you started to decide to build the Troublesome Creek Stringed Instrument Company? Certainly it informed what we built it into now, which is a means of employing people who have completed our Luthery training. Mm -hmm. I realized that one of the most critical needs in the lives of these people is to have some place to go. Worst thing that can happen to a person coming out of rehab is to come out to nothing. Mm -hmm. Because if you got no place to go, if you don't have a new direction, if you don't have a way of breaking that pattern, if they say, well, here, here's your ride back to your hometown where all this started, all you're doing is you're just pushing them through a revolving door. Mm -hmm. What we do is about mitigating that kind of recidivism. We want to keep people out of that revolving door. And so we have to be accountable for them. 
as much as we can on a longer-term basis. And because we had people in recovery already in the forefront of this, it was really good because they can mentor people in behind them Mm. and bring them into the walking in recovery and also bring them into the workforce. So people practicing recovery, and now there's a new kind of recovery that you're all part of. Would you be able to take us through your experience uh, July 28th? Now, to set the stage, we have 12 people working at the Troublesome Creek String Instrument Company factory. The factory was in the big Heinemann High School building over across the creek, just at the edge of downtown. And it was a beehive of activity, and we were just having a great time. That was a Wednesday. Went back home to the apartment. I'm in the upstairs of the Appalachian School, Luthery. So from the second floor, you know, I enjoy a bird's eye view of downtown. And July 28th, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I was awakened by the power going off. It wasn't so much a sound, it was the absence of sound. All the white noise stopped, all the lights went off, set bolt upright and looked around, and I thought, well, probably we've had a lightning strike or you know, trees turned over, taken out a power line. That happens. Mm-hmm. Hyman is in a notch in the mountains. It's very steep and rocky all around us. There's several cuts that have been cut into the rock to make roads down in through town and Of course, Hyman's all laid out along Troublesome Creek. Well, 2 o'clock in the morning, everything went silent. I tried to lay down for a while, and in a few minutes, the sound of the rain on the roof went from a good, hard summer rain to something very freakish and loud. It sounded like somebody had managed to situate a fire hose above the roof and was blasting down on the roof. Mm. And I thought, oh, mercy, this is going to make a mess. I rummaged around. I found a little LED flashlight, and I opened the bedroom window, which faced out across Main Street. There was two or three inches of water shooting down the street. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be a good one. About that time, an alarm went off on my iPhone. And I picked it up and it said, flash flood warning. And I thought, oh no, this is raining hard. Somebody out there in the counties, in the proverbial low-lying areas, they may have a situation here. Mm -hmm. I'll just hope and pray, you know, that that doesn't happen. And every time I looked at the window, the water was really shooting down the street. I realized that Troublesome Creek had grown exponentially Mm. it was out and all over everything and I was just chilled to realize that the water shooting down the street was Troublesome Creek and it was getting deeper and faster all the time about that time a little after 
saw some light, a flashlight shining back at my flashlight from across the street. It was the pastor from the Baptist church across the street. He says, hey, do you need someone to come up there and get you? I said, no, I'd rather you didn't because I already knew that there was no way I, I would be any place safer than on the second floor of a cut stone building. Mm. That building had been there since 1928. I wasn't about to abandon that. Uh, I knew that the creek floods came up quickly and went down quickly. So I was just going to wait it out, watch. Well, it kept coming up. At a certain point, it was over the hood of my Toyota. The water was four or five feet deep in the middle of Main Street. I saw a box trailer, like you pull horses in, was laid over on its side, shooting down Main Street. And all kinds of things, clunking around in the Luthery downstairs. At first, I thought that Paul, our instructor, had come in. Maybe he was trying to secure some things because he was worried about the water. But I realized that things were afloat and smashing around. And then at one point, the front windows smashed out of the School of Luthery and big picture windows shuttered the whole building. And uh, it was right beneath where I was standing, looking out of the second floor. Mm. I kind of grabbed the window frames and thought, Maybe the building was going down. You know, about 100 feet of frontage on the Main Street side had just turned into a big opening. And the creek was running straight off of Main Street into the Luthery mm. and taking instruments and furniture. Oh, my gosh. In the morning light, I, I, we discovered that many homes had been destroyed. <gasps> When I came down that morning, I ran after musical instruments out in the street and chased them, caught a few things and pulled them back to the school. But the museum of the mountain dulcimer, the windows had been smashed out of it. And as the day wore on, I realized that people had been lost. Mm. Two people had died in Heinemann. Mm. My point is, as the light came, then it was just hunting for people and things and trying to make a path. I literally couldn't even walk when the water went down. There's too much mud and debris. Mm-hmm. When you got to the instrument factory and had your workers there with you, I mean, what did you say? Well, the first worker I had with me was our apprentice who had come from Melbourne, Florida, Willow. This young lady was 19 years old. She'd come to finish her folk banjo, which was destroyed, and she had come to help me open the doors. My employees could not get in that morning. Hmm. The roads were impassable. Two of my people had lost their homes in the night. Hmm. By the way, never rent a place in a place called Frogtown, because it might as well say highly flood prone. (laughs) Well, I don't know. You have Troublesome Creek in your name. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have some strong opinions about locating on Troublesome Creek also. (laughs) You know why they call it Troublesome Creek? I mean, it literally 
was Troublesome Creek delivering trouble beyond which no one could imagine. Mm -hmm. When my people came in, they were sickened and really sad because they had worked very hard toward a goal and all of their progress toward that goal, well, it was seemingly destroyed. I mean, skill is something that a flood can't take away from you. But your workbench and your tools and all your work in progress, the, f the flood can sure take it. And it did. When we started back in, it was so primordial, the whole process. We were digging through this stinking mud. It was feet deep in places and full of rocks and power tools. That was a whole another level of difficulty because we had to get basic things like flashlights and uh, buckets didn't have running water so if you can imagine a guitar a four thousand dollar guitar that you have to pour the water out of it <laughs> then go down to the creek and dip up a bucket of flood water and then with a smaller container pour that flood water over this instrument wipe it down with towels and hope that it's not damaged beyond repair. Right. And everything we own, everything had to be rescued. And, you know, we've learned a lot about what survives the flood and what doesn't. How much of what you're doing and rebuilding is in consideration that this could happen again? I'm sort of in this strange space because it's easy for an outsider to say, well, look, Here's your problem. You're built there. You should just shouldn't build there. I was flooded out of a building mm -hmm. that had never been flooded. Our school of Lutheran had never been flooded. The Heinemann High School, which we had rebuilt into the Troublesome Creek String Instrument Company, was built in 1931. It was a WPA project, you know, under Roosevelt, I guess. It had never been flooded. There had never been water up in the lower level of it, much less the upper level where all of our machines were. So everyone's calling it a thousand-year flood. Mm. Now, I had a U.S. geological survey team came by here. and They were collecting anecdotal information about how this town had flooded. He said, what does it mean to you when I say thousand-year flood? And I said, well, not much, because I don't think it takes a thousand years for something like this to come around. In fact, we're a little shell-shocked. We're concerned about this week or next week or next year. I said, but we have to rebuild because where else are you going to go? Hmm. And in our lifetime, we've never seen a flood like this. So we're somewhere in between resting in this idea that this is a thousand-year freak storm and the idea that it's just a bad idea to be anywhere near the creek. If you take away all of Appalachia that is near the creek, then that's pretty much all of Appalachia. <laughs> Are people talking about this in terms of extreme weather, climate change? I mean, how do people see it 
in the community? Mostly I've heard people lay this off to climate change because anyone that's lived here for generations will tell you that this never happened before. But it's happening now because that's the kind of weather we have now. Hmm. Look, if you get two feet of rain in a two-hour period anywhere in the United States, you're going to have a problem. (laughs) And Appalachia, because of the steepness of the terrain, Mm -hmm. it can accelerate this water until it blows through like a bulldozer in high gear. Unfortunately, we lost 17 people in not counting alone. In the surrounding counties, I think there's a total of 40 people, or maybe 41 people now, were lost. You cannot rent an apartment or a house in this county or neighboring counties for love or money right now. And so it's really hard for people to come in and work here or live here right now. Yeah. I first heard about you when I heard about the flood. I heard you in a radio interview, and like I said, I couldn't even possibly imagine picking up my one guitar that I own and it being full of water. And I also was just thinking, this guy has so much ahead of him, but he's talking like he has a little bit of hope. Oh, sure. You know, you can't do that much work without getting optimistic about the fact that you're seeing progress. Yeah. It's like this incredible sense of urgency that's like, if we don't get this out of the water, it's lost. And that kind of unrest takes you a while to uh, get that out of your system. And I'm just now getting to the point where I can sleep all night and wake up in the morning and just say, what now? Because we're building back on dry ground. And uh, we have a new Appalachian School of Luthery. We have been building a new school and a new factory into the same building. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the school from now on, God willing, and the creek don't rise. And have all your employees stayed with you? Not all of them. Of course, you know, these people were all vulnerable We had about 12 people. Now I think we're working with a crew of eight. Mm. Now the good news is that Jesse, one of the guys who uh, went to jail, he is in Hickory Hill again, and he will be free to come back on the payroll in about three weeks. Mm. He's a very hard worker. He's well-trained in making the Thomas Dulcimer, which we're getting a lot of orders for right now. So we're looking forward to getting him back. We're also training a couple of people out of Hickory Hill and Drug Court right now. So our hiring continues, but we were brought a little bit low by the flood-related situations. Mm -hmm. And where are you at as far as being able to build instruments again? Because I have my eye on that Sweet dread, I really. Oh yeah, <laughs> I need you to get back in there. <laughs> it's a nice guitar. In fact, that's what I have right here. Actually, this guitar, this guitar oh. is a sweet dread that uh, had water poured out of it on July twenty eighth. <gasps> it was in a guitar stand in the setup room of the factory, 
and it floated and sank. Oh, my gosh. And it's, it's needed a little TLC. Yeah. Well, she's still singing. Oh, yeah. It works <laughs> great. It just doesn't look as pretty as it used to. It's got little lifts on the finish around some of the sharper edges that mm. looks like they've got flood mud in them and probably will have from now on. But uh, we're back to building. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the guys, you get their workbench all set up and find most of their tools. Then they go to their space and they're like, okay, I'm back. I, this is good. So uh, they're doing a lot of repair work, but they're also going to be doing from scratch constructions mm. very, very shortly. Yeah. But for a while, we're going to be rebuilding instruments that have been anointed by the floodwaters. I mean, I know you would never wish this on anyone, and, and if you could go back and change it, you would. But is there anything you feel like you've learned from this that you're grateful for? Yeah, of course. I've had it reinforced once again how important this work is to people in Appalachia and people in recovery in Appalachia in particular. They're bought in not because they're trying to make a buck or trying to prove something to anyone but themselves. They're bought in because they need to be here. And I need to be doing this because they need to be here. Every day that I've worked with them since the flood has reinforced that. And I've tried to have them something to do every day. And I've tried to have that something propel them in the direction of the future. Recovery from a substance abuse disorder is not that different than recovery from a catastrophic disaster. It's a work that you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. Hmm. Recovery and then sustainability. I, I am curious, growing up in Appalachia, doing the work you're doing today, what does sustainability look like to you? Long-term survival is, of course, another way to look at sustainability. Putting yourself in the mind frame of the whole ecosystem. I mean, they even refer to uh, helping people in recovery and occupying them, bringing them into the workforce. They they refer to that as a recovery ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So, to me, Appalachia has suffered some grievous offenses when it comes to extractive industries. The exact opposite of sustainability. They come in, they take out the coal, they take out the timber, they leave the people broken and broke. Mm -hmm. Building back things that, yes, are sustainable And building back jobs that don't destroy people. I like to think that we could be luthiers and our kids could be luthiers. And we could be like, oh, C.F. Martin over in in Pennsylvania there. We could have a multi-generational workforce, which would be 
a shining example of human sustainability. Of course, making the instruments out of, once again, sustainable yield Appalachian hardwoods as opposed to instruments that are made of materials that put a stress on the environment. Just working in that direction. You don't have to do it perfectly, Mm -hmm. but you sure can go a long way from what people have done in the past. If you're on the right track, you can feel it. I know how important this is to people, and I can see a lot of the indirect results of these guys. They come in and they have no home, they have no vehicle, they're right out of rehab, they don't even have really their own clothes, shoes that match, heck, they're a mess. And they don't have driver's licenses a lot of times, and they can't get insurance. God knows what they went through to get incarcerated to begin with. But when they come out, they've already made up their mind that they're going to build back. They're going to sustain. And so everything we do is to restore all of that. When they come in and say, hey, I've got visitation of my son. And then they come back and they say, wait, I've got full custody now because Mm -hmm. of this. And then I've got a car. I bought a house. I put up a barn. (laughs) We're going to raise goats. (laughs) Seriously, there's a lot of stuff that happens that you can trace back to the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. What is giving you reason to hope? It's the people around me and the fact that prayers do get answered. It seems like about the time you're getting discouraged, then you you get a really good break. Opportunity is in the midst of every crisis. In fact, you know, the Chinese, they say that crisis is uh, opportunity riding on a dangerous wind. That's an old Confucian thing, I think. But the fact is that getting everything destroyed is... Probably not the best way, but at least one way to get everything built back new. Mm. And we've had some opportunity to move and build and grow that is simply based on a catastrophic loss. Mm. And my people are right there with me. I have hope because they have hope. I have to keep moving forward because... They don't want to see things go any other way. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing with me today and for all of the work you're doing. Well, thank you for your work. I appreciate this. This is a great opportunity. Well, I can't wait to get down there at some point and play some of these guitars in person with you and hopefully maybe sing a song together sometime. That would be wonderful. (laughs) Wouldn't that be fun? Thanks so much to Doug Road for reminding us of the beauty and strength of spirit that lives on in Appalachia. You can find out more about the culture of recovery, the Appalachian School of Luthery, and the Troublesome Creek Stringed Instrument Company at troublesomecreekguitars.com. And if you're going to buy a guitar, I would recommend The Sweet Dread. Hope is My Middle Name is hosted and executive produced by me, Kate Tucker. 
This is our last episode of season two, but we'll be back in the spring with more hope. Until then, you can find me on Instagram at Kate Tucker Music, and if there's someone who you think belongs on the show, please send me a message. This episode was produced by Christine Fennessy with editing from Audrey No and Rachel Swaby. Our sound engineer is Mark Bush. Thanks to Doug Nasalroad for sharing his songs, additional music by the fantastic artists at Epidemic Sound and Soundstripe. Big thanks to Connor Gaughan, our publisher and fearless leader at Consensus Digital Media. Hope is My Middle Name can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It would mean a lot to me if you would follow, rate, and review the show. Hope is My Middle Name is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media produced in association with Reasonable Volume. Take it away, Doug. Well, I rode Big Gray into Hindman Town Where I left him dead on the cold, dark ground He drowned himself, taking me away When the flood rose up at the break of day Down Hindman Town Hindman Town Where the mountains ring You all around down Hindman Town, Hindman Town, <laughs> where the rain comes down with a troublesome sand. <laughs>